with me to Acts chapter 9. If you don't have your own Bible and would like to use one of the red ones nearby, it is on page 535. If you don't have a Bible at home, we would love to give you that red Bible for you to use at home. We want to make sure that you have the Word of God available to you uh, whenever you need it. All right, we're looking at Acts chapter 9, and we're continuing this march through the book of Acts as we follow the gospel going forth into all of the world. And we're looking at how the gospel specifically interacts with all different kinds of people. And this morning, we're looking at how the gospel reaches a Pharisee. You might know him as the Apostle Paul, but before that, his name was Saul, and he was a Pharisee, and he was, as we'll read, persecuting the church. After Saul's conversion, he actually goes on to be one of the, the greatest Christian missionaries that the world has ever seen. He took the gospel and went from town to town, city to city, introducing both Jews and Gentiles to the gospel of Jesus, planting churches along the way. Do I need a new microphone? All right. Thanks. The Apostle Paul actually wrote 13 of the 27 books of our New Testament. So this man was incredibly influential. Many, many regard him as one of the most important figures in the Christian church, second only to Jesus Christ. And so what happened? What happened to Saul to change him from the way he was living his life and turn him around to begin to follow Jesus. Luke tells us that he converted. He, he set down his way of living before and took up what it meant to follow Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, we're going to see that Paul, this religious zealot, persecuting Christians, can be changed by the gospel. And as we read this chapter, we're going to ask three questions. And so if you want to follow along with notes in your bulletin, this is where we're headed. As we read, we're going to see what makes a Pharisee, what stops a Pharisee, and what saves a Pharisee. So what makes a Pharisee, what stops a Pharisee, and what saves a Pharisee? Let's read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, 
And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Heavenly Father, we pray even this morning that we would see your beauty, your light that shines into our lives. Lord, that we would see your, your holiness and repent of our wickedness and come to you again anew, Lord, and receive your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what makes a Pharisee? Well, a Pharisee, he, a Pharisee was a, a subsection of Judaism. It was a group of people and had leaders and students, and it was a kind of Judaism that believed and taught that the Old Testament taught this, that your basis, your, your standing before God was on the basis or condition of your ability to follow the law. It was this simple idea that, that if you obeyed the law and the rules, then God would love you. But if you disobeyed, if you fell, if you failed, well, then God would punish you. And this is what Paul believed. This is what it meant to be a Pharisee, to teach that our standing before God was on the basis of our own performance. You might re recall in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is always finding opposition by the Pharisees. It was this group of people that taught this. And th this was pretty widespread at that time. Paul was a Pharisee. He had raised up and was trained and educated in this school of thought. And we see in chapter 9 that it led him to persecuting the church. And we see in verse 1 that he was breathing murderous threats against Christians. He, he hated Christians because Christians stood against everything that he believed. You, you, Christians were a threat to him as a Pharisee. He, he was a leader in this group and Christians were a threat to him. Why? Why, why did Christians pose a threat to Paul and the Pharisees? Well, because the, the way of the Pharisees, it was, it was an anti-gospel. I mean, it was a false gospel. It was the opposite of the gospel. Look, the anti-gospel says that your standing before God is on the basis of your performance, but the gospel says that your standing before God is not based upon your performance, 
but upon the performance of someone else, namely Jesus. And because of Jesus, we don't work to gain God's favor. Rather, we rest in that love which is freely ours through grace. The gospel was antithetical to Paul's whole worldview. And so he was determined to snuff out Christians wherever he found them. I mean, he had letters of authority giving him the power to just go into a city and round up the Christians and throw them in jail. He hated it. He despised it. He thought they were so wrong. There are religious Pharisees all over the New Testament this, that believe in this anti-gospel. But there are even Pharisees today, too. There are Pharisees maybe even amongst us this morning. We have to ask, what, what makes a Pharisee then? You know, what does it mean to be a Pharisee today? Well, there's religious Pharisees like Paul, but that idea of basing one's acceptance on our behavior, that spills out over into other areas of our life. So what does it mean to be a Pharisee? Well, to be a Pharisee means to have such strong convictions, such powerful convictions about the way to live or the way to do something that you look down upon people who do not believe or do the things that you believe or do. To have such strong convictions and then look down on other people who do not believe like you do. This is what Paul was doing. He, he was so strongly enmeshed in his Judaism that when he saw Christians that didn't believe the way that he believed, that didn't view God the way that he viewed God, he looked down upon them to the extreme. He wanted to kill them. So what does it mean to be a Pharisee today? Well, you can be a Pharisee about a lot of things. Just think about in the church. Some people have these ideas of what is the right worship music to sing. And, and you think, if, if we only sang this, like this is the only kind of song where we can feel God's presence. Or other people feel like, no, no, this is the only kind of song that's theologically true and robust and will teach us. We, we have to sing this song or we have to sing that song because if we don't sing that song, if we don't sing this song, well, then we're not singing the right kinds of songs. We can be Pharisees about worship music. We can be Pharisees about what people wear to church. Like if you aren't dressing up with suit and tie, then you are dishonoring God and dishonoring one another. Some people believe that. We can have Pharisees about which version of the Bible is, is really the right version to read. There's numerous ways in which we become Pharisees within the church. But it spills out. You can be a Pharisee of a lot of things. I know myself included, being a parent, it's really easy to become a parent Pharisee. Where you read up about the, the best way to raise kids. You know, the best schools to send them to. The best activities to sign them up for. The amount of screen time they're allowed to have the activities that they have to be a part of. It's really easy to come to a conclusion where you've researched and you've studied and you said, this is the right way to raise kids. And if you don't raise your kid this way, man, you're raising your kids wrong. 
and, and you're hurting them. It's really easy to be a Pharisee about how we raise kids. But also, like, in the broader culture. Like, we have people that, that think that you have to spend your money in this way. And if you aren't spending it that way, then you're doing it wrong. Or you, you have to save your money this way. And if you aren't saving your money this way, you're doing it wrong. Or you have to behave like this in public. And if you're not behaving like that in public, well, you're embarrassing yourself and those around you. You have to dress like this. You have to say these kinds of words. You have to wear these kinds of clothes. And if you aren't doing those things, you're wrong. The heart of a Pharisee says, I am right. What I do is right. What I say is right. What I wear is right. And anyone else, they're just wrong. What do you have strong opinions about? Have you ever looked down upon someone who doesn't hold to those opinions? Have you ever looked down on someone who doesn't behave the way that you think they should be behaving? You see, the danger with being a Pharisee is that somewhere along the line, you begin to be convinced that not only are you right and other people are wrong, but you become convinced that God sees your rightness and sees their wrongness and chooses to love you because you're right and doesn't love them because they're wrong. That's the danger of being a Pharisee, is that you end up thinking that on the basis of your own performance, God must like you. And on the basis of their performance, God must not like them. This is what we mean when we talk about being self-righteous. That word righteous is just a fancy way of saying accepted. And when we say being self-righteous, what we mean is that people frame their lives in such a way that they believe that they are accepted on the basis of themselves. This is what is at the root of being a Pharisee, this self-righteousness. And Jesus condemns this. Like all over his ministry, when he's engaging with Pharisees, he condemns this. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, he calls out Pharisees and says that they are like people who wash the outsides of cups, but they leave the inside dirty. Pharisees project an image of perfection, an image of politeness, an image of being good all along ignoring the fact that there is wickedness and brokenness and weakness and failure and sin on the inside. I've talked frequently about the house projects that we're working on, and I just primed our kitchen walls ready to paint this week. And thankfully, we didn't have anything wrong with our walls, but I've heard horror stories of water damage behind the walls from the roof. And you can't take enough paint and cover over water damage and pretend that it's okay and that it's fixed. 
Look, if you just paint over water damage, it might look nice, but that water damage is just going to seep through and ruin the wall. The problem with being a Pharisee is we put on this outside layer, this performance, this level of behavior, all while ignoring the root of the issue, that we are trying to base our relationship with God on our performance. We're hiding our sin. So that's what it means to be a Pharisee. That's what, that's what makes a Pharisee. I think if we're honest, to one degree or another, everyone in this room is a Pharisee. We all have this tendency to hide our sin. So what stops a Pharisee? What stops us from continuing in this pattern? Well, Paul saw, I'm going to, I'll probably say Paul when I should say Saul, but he, he's walking down the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden, this light shines, and it blinds him. He, he, he gets knocked down to the ground, and he hears this voice. It is the voice of Jesus, and he says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what stops a Pharisee? An encounter with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus that knocks him off the horse. He falls to the ground. And an encounter with Jesus, it does two things. It exposes our sin. It, it reveals what was once hidden. And it also reveals our inability to save ourselves. An encounter with Jesus it exposes our sin and reveals our inability to save ourselves. Let's look at that first. It exposes our sin. The light was shining all around him. It was bright enough to blind him, and there was this voice saying out to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did you catch that? Why are you persecuting me? Look, Saul's been going around persecuting Christians. And yet when he encounters Jesus, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting me? You've been hurting me. You've been persecuting me. You've been fighting me. You've been sinning against me. An encounter with Jesus exposes the depth of our sin that it is against God himself. This is what the psalmist King David said in Psalm 51. This song of confession after committing adultery. He says to God in this psalm, against you, you alone have I sinned. What we need to, to stop being a Pharisee is to see that our sin that we're hiding it is not just something that we have done against other people around us, but it, ultimately it is something that we have done against God. Look, when we sin against a friend or a family member or, or even a stranger, we fail to see how that sin is ultimately against God. And we do this sort of dance where we either try to justify what we had done, that it wasn't really that bad, or we try to very quickly make amends to ignore the fact that we hurt them. But if this is true, 
If, if it is true that ultimately the sin that we're hiding and running away from and dancing around, if it is ultimately against God, well, there's no dancing around that. Like, there's no justification that we can give to say, oh, God, it wasn't that bad. Come on, give me a break. Oh, God, let me just make up for it. It'll be okay. We can't do that when we realize that we are sinning against God. There's no hiding your sin from him. So what stops a Pharisee? We need an encounter with Jesus that exposes our sin. It exposes it. It brings it into the light. We get to sense the gravity of what we have done. Have you had that kind of experience and encounter with Jesus? Have, have you had your own sin exposed to what it really is? How, how do you react when someone calls you out when you've done something wrong to them? What do you say? Like, do you, do you try to justify it and say, well, yeah, but here's why I did that? Or, or do you dance around and say, oh, it wasn't really that bad. Come on. It, it's all right. You, just forget about it. Or do you try to make up for it real quick and pretend like it didn't happen? How do you react when you are called out and your sin is exposed? Have you ever been caught in the act? Found out? Maybe by God's grace, he's the one that exposed it for you. Or maybe you're still hiding behind that whitewashed wall. Here's some advice. Expose your own sin to God before he chooses graciously to expose it for you. Take off that mask and bring it to the light. That's what it takes to stop a Pharisee. But Paul also saw in this encounter with Jesus not only the depth of his own sin, but his inability to save himself. Look at verse 8. When Saul arose from the ground, although his eyes were opened, he could not see anything. And so they led him by the hand and they brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight. He was blind. He couldn't care for himself. Someone had to lead him along the way. He couldn't care for himself. He became dependent upon someone or something else outside of himself. A pastor friend of mine tells the story of when he was teaching a Sunday school class of elementary school students. And he was trying to teach them about what it meant to trust in the Lord. And he had this activity that he would have the kids do where they would blindfold one of the students and then the rest of the class would have to direct the student around the classroom or around the church and going between doors and over obstacles and you know, trying to learn what does it mean to trust in the Lord. And it was all fun and games and until the students realized, oh, let's, let's have Mr. Johnson do it. Let's blindfold the teacher and let's lead him around the church. And so he did, and it was terrifying. I mean, he was trusting his life to these students. Have you ever been blindfolded and experienced what it was like to not be able to see? To, to be unable to care for yourself in any way. What Saul needed was an encounter with Jesus that revealed his inability to save himself. 
He needed to be blind to see that he can't do anything to help him. He saw the depth of his sin. He saw the one against whom he was sinning against. He was knocked down. He was blind. He couldn't save himself. In short, he was exactly where he needed to be to be saved. Look, I fear that the church in our culture has gained this reputation of being a place where everyone has it all together. That, That everyone's got their lives all neat and tidy and put together. And I worry that even our neighbors that we're inviting to church to experience God's grace, what they have in their mind is this idea that you have to be cleaned up to go to church. I wonder how how much have we individually contributed to that perception to our neighbors? We need to be where Paul is here, knocked down, feeling the weight of his sin, feeling unable to save himself. It is only when we as Christians come to the cross in a desperation of his grace and mercy, it is only then that we really start being the church. Look, we are not a club of the righteous. We are a hospital for sinners. And so we have to come in desperate need of being saved. This is what Paul understood. And actually from this point on, for the rest of his ministry, the rest of his life, this is what marked his understanding of himself that he was completely unable to save himself. In fact, in one of his last letters that he writes to Titus, he says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Of whom I am the foremost. Paul understood that, Wherever he went, he was the foremost sinner in the room. He was the one that needed God's grace more than anyone else. Is that true of you? Are you at that place yet? Or when you walk into a room, do you look around and wonder and think, well, I'm better than that person. I've, I've got it more put together than them. Well, at least I'm not like him. Can you believe what she's been doing? Yeah, I'm so glad I'm not like that. That's what a Pharisee says when they walk into a room. They say, look how much better I am than them. But a Christian, a Christian walks into the room and says, I am the chief of sinners. I am the foremost of sinners here. I need God's grace every day, all day long, again and again, because apart from God's grace, I'm nothing. I'm knocked down. I'm blind. I'm unable to save myself. That's what stops a Pharisee. An encounter with Jesus that exposes one's sin and you feel the weight 
your inability to save yourself. Well, then what does save a Pharisee? What saves a Pharisee? I said earlier that the root issue for all Pharisees is that they operate to one degree or another on this belief, that their standing before God is on the condition of their own righteousness, their own name, their own reputation, their own behavior. And so what stops a Pharisee is being exposed to the reality that their behavior does not hold up against God. It cannot help them. They are the biggest sinners in the room. And so what does a Pharisee need to be saved? What do we need to be saved when we realize that our name stands nothing compared to God? What do we need? We need a new name. We we need a new identity. We need a new righteousness. What saves a Pharisee? A new name to stand on. So Saul, he stands up and he's blind, and they walk him to Damascus. And at the same time as he's headed into Damascus, there's this man, Ananias, who's a follower of Jesus. And Jesus comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, go. Go find this man, Saul, from Tarsus. He is blind, and he has seen a vision, and he is waiting for you to go and pray and heal him. And Ananias says, Lord, you know who you're talking about, right? This guy has come here to put me to death. You want me to go? And Jesus says, yeah. He says, yes. This man is my chosen instrument. He he is going to bear my name before Gentiles and kings all around the world. And I will let him know how much he is going to suffer for the sake of my name name. Twice in this comment, Jesus tells us that Paul is going to bear the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is going to be on Paul. The only way to save a Pharisee is to give that Pharisee a new name, a new identity, a new resume that will stand up for them when they stand before God. And we see here That when we have a saving encounter with Jesus, it is his name that becomes ours. It is his reputation that becomes our own. Paul believed this. And we see in his letter to the Philippians, Garrett, if you'll put it up on the screen, in this letter to the Philippians, many years later, he writes this. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, I count everything as loss, Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see what Paul is saying? Look, if there was anyone in the history of people that could say that they had some confidence that their behavior meant that God would approve of them, it was Paul. He had done everything that he thought he needed to do. He had obeyed all the rules. He had said, I have done everything right. And he says, it doesn't matter. I I count it all as trash because my own righteousness cannot stand before God. I count it all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. He had a self-righteousness but it would not stand. He needed a righteousness that came from outside of himself, an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness that came upon himself, a new name, a new identity, a new reputation, a a, a new resume that said everything that Jesus has done, every perfect obedience to the law, to the Father, that is now mine. This righteousness is the very righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. And it is ours through faith. His name becomes ours. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel that on the cross, Jesus took your name and your failure and your sin. And he took it and nailed it to the cross so that it is no longer on you. And he gives us now, through faith, his own name, his own righteousness, his own perfection. And so that everything that could be true, could be said to be true of Jesus is now true of you. Perfectly obedient to his father, completely loving to his neighbor. He fed the 5,000, while now in him, when father looks at you, you fed the 5,000. His resume becomes your own. That's what it means to take on the name of Jesus. Do you have that name? Do you have that identity, that resume? Do you carry his name with you each and every day? Look, when you wake up, do you realize that you bear his name, not because of what you've done, but because of his grace to you? When you walk into a room, do you think, yes, I am the biggest sinner in here, but praise be to God that Jesus has come to save sinners like me. And so you walk into a room, yes, the foremost sinner, but more loved and treasured and cherished than anyone because of Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are beloved of the Father because of Jesus? In the late 1970s, there was a professor at a seminary in New England that wrote this book, The History of Spiritual Revivals Throughout History. And he he catalogs what made those revivals work. What were the conditions that, that enabled revival to take place in individuals and in churches and across the country? And although the book was written almost 50 years ago, the principles still ring true. The author points out this. 
he says that a fraction of the body of professing Christians today, they are not solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Let me break that down. In other words, he's saying that most Christians today do not know how to apply to their lives this truth, that we bear the name of Jesus. He goes on to say, in their day-to-day experience, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. In other words, he's saying that most Christians today view themselves before God on the basis of their fulfilling of the law, their performing of works of righteousness, their, their attempts at loving and doing the things that God wants us to do. They say, I'm a Christian because I do these things. But he's saying, if we want to have a revival, if we want to spark a fire that will burn for his glory in our own lives and in this church and in this city, we have to realize that we stand upon the name of Jesus and his righteousness alone. He concludes by saying this, that few people today know how to start each day of their lives with a thoroughgoing stand upon this platform. You are accepted. You are loved. Look outside of yourself and through faith claim that righteousness of Christ for yourself. It is your only ground of acceptance. What would it look like for you to begin every day of your life like that? The moment you get up to reminding yourself, I am loved because of Jesus. When you stand in the mirror and you hear the voices going around accusing you of certain things, blaming you of things, telling you who you are, what would it mean for you to stand in the mirror and say, no, because of Jesus, I am accepted. I am loved. I think that would change our lives and it would change our church and the city around us. If the church became known not for being a club for the righteous or a hospital for sinners, a a people that walk into the room and say, I'm the biggest sinner here, but God's grace is so amazing that he would even save me. Friends, what makes a Pharisee? Believing that you're right and everyone else is wrong. What stops a Pharisee is an encounter with Jesus where your sin is exposed and you realize that you cannot save yourself. What saves a Pharisee? Jesus Christ and him alone. And through faith in him, his righteousness becomes yours. Let's pray.